Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. My name is Paul Evans, I sit on the editorial board of the journal and I'll be your host. In this, our first episode, managing editor Richard Young spoke with Leon Livermore, chief executive of the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. Since he took on the role in 2013, Leon has led CTSI through a period of immense change, during which trading standards has come under pressure from budget cuts, the new risks posed to consumer protection by emerging technologies, and of course, the ever-looming threat of Brexit. In a wide-ranging interview, Leon talked about the big changes he has seen during his career and the challenges faced by the profession, sharing his thoughts on the importance of trading standards to society as a whole and what the future might look like. He began by telling us how he got started in the profession. I'm Leon Livermore and I'm Chief Executive of the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. I mean, my first involvement in getting into the profession in trading standards was over 30 years ago. Um, I had actually applied to be a police officer and it was not long after the Broadwater Farm uh, riots. One of the issues there was a number of young officers without life experience. So whilst I was accepted by the Met Police, they gave me a start date in about 18 months' time and said, you know, just go and, just, just go and get some life experience. So I ended up working at the council on reception and I became fascinated by trading standards because often we have um, consumers come in with issues and the advisors from Kingston Trading Standards would come down and talk to them and I just started chatting to them and uh, yeah, it seemed like a really good job and a really worthwhile thing to do and I was fortunate enough while, while I was there to actually um, a trainee position come up as a trainee trading standards officer and I was fortunate enough to get it and I suppose I haven't looked back since. I've uh, been doing it for over 30 years and it's a profession that I, I love and I'm really grateful actually for the opportunities that it's given me. What were your first impressions when you started working in trading standards? I must admit, I think, and I think it's probably you know, as relevant today as, as it was back then. I think people only see a little bit of trading standards, uh, the bit they interact with. So I, I you know, naively, when I went into it, thought trading standards was primarily around consumer advice and supporting consumers. But then you suddenly, you know, when you become a trainee, you suddenly realise the breadth of everything you do from animal health, food, you know, fair trading prices, product safety, you know, the traditional weights and measures kind of stuff. And, you know, recently getting more into kind of tackling organised criminal gangs, um, supporting vulnerable people. So, yeah, I, I was just, and a lot of people are, just surprised by the breadth of, of what the profession did when I first started it, started in it. So what would you say are the major changes in the profession since you started and what's caused them? Well, I think, I think you know, if you compare, you know, a modern economy and the way, the way that trades to, you know, even only 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, yeah, I mean, the internet has, has changed the high street for, forever. Back when I started, you know, it was very much a place-based profession. Um, and when you found something wrong, you, you, you had, I would say, reasonably simple, straightforward supply chains to, to go back up to find where where the issue is. Now, obviously, with the internet driving more and more trade away from the high street, you know, that's more challenging to police. It's a different skill set. It's harder to interact with the traders when they're online. Often, you'll find the traders are abroad. And if you think about some of the issues, for example, when you had hoverboards a few years ago and a lot of the problems there were from small micro-importers, you know, people who might buy you know, one for themselves but half a dozen to sell to make, make some money. We never really had that years ago. You know, you'd have major, major importers who would then you know, supply them to wholesalers and direct-to-retailers. So it was a much simpler supply chain. I also think you know, in terms of that additional 
complexity. You know, I remember reading somewhere, you know, there's 15 billion unique goods and services within a city like London. And that's, you know, that's just a huge breadth of issues that we need, we need to cover. And so, so I, think, I think there's an increased complexity about what we do in, in our job. At the same time, you know, over the past 10 years, we've had to deal with you know, a real reduction in resources. So if you think about austerity and the impact that that's had on local government as a whole, you know, it has really curtailed the ability to spend and invest. You add on top of that you know, the challenges of you know, dealing with, a, with an ageing population, hopefully one that ages well and, and independently, but, you know, but that all adds up to cost, and you're suddenly seeing an increase in demand, increased complexity in supply chains at the same time of diminishing resources. So it is a, it is a real challenge the last 10 years of trying to get the voice of our profession heard. We are a small percentage of the public spend, yet we, you know, some of the protections we provide are some of the oldest protections that citizens enjoy. So, we, so we've got to be really careful that that voice doesn't get lost. Just going back to that increase in complexity you mentioned, what effect is that having on training? Yeah, you know, when you think about how, how we train officers and the skill sets you need, you know, thirty years ago, you know, the ability to you know, remember you know, to, to remember legislation was paramount and key. However, you know, with with smart technology, smartphones, you can carry a lot of information at your fingertips. So so that, that retention of that that traditional knowledge is perhaps not as not as important as it once was. But some of those softer skills, you know, the ability to interact with people, the ability to have an you know to have an inquiring mind and, and ask and ask and ask questions, the ability to solve problems. So as with a lot of lot of professions, you know, we're seeing a change in the sort of people that want to come in. Um, to trading standards so it isn't perhaps once when I came in it was a job for life actually people might want to come in and do it for a few years and then go and do something else so they, they bring they bring a sort of a different skill set and you think about as well some of the stuff we do around you know um, victims of scams you know the, the brilliant work that the National Trading Standards Scams team does yeah actually you're engaging with some of the most vulnerable people in our society and that's a completely different skill set and, and a way of working than dealing with perhaps hard-nosed criminals so I think so I think it's the softer skills that have come to the fore rather than rather than the knowledge and the ability I suppose to to deploy that across a range of scenarios is important and that that makes it then quite hard for us to train and test people because it's it's relatively easy to put um, knowledge into someone and test their knowledge but how how do you how do you test someone's ability to interact with a vulnerable consumer do you think there's a misconception in the wider public about what trading standards does it's a competing landscape for public attention like i've said before you know people understand trading standards from the bits they interact in so you know so if you've had an issue you know, with a trader and you've gone to trading standards, you understand that part of our role. I think trying to convey, you know, the, the breadth and depth of what our profession does to people is a challenge, actually. And I think it's a challenge getting that across to politicians. You know, I think I'm on about my sixth minister in six years, and everyone takes about six or seven months to get up to speed with what consumer protection is and what and what the issues are. And when they get it, they finally understand actually about about how valuable the service, you know, our members and trading standards professionals to provide to their communities. Whatever we do in life, we are all consumers. We all buy goods, we all consume goods and services. And it's really important that that those goods 
are safe, they're fairly described, and you know of a decent of decent quality standard. We do have a good system of consumer protection in the UK, but it it is under threat and under challenge. You know, we've we've recently seen a, a you know a witch report coming out. You know, which which is quite scathing about you know UK consumer protection. You know, and it's quite challenging to to read that, especially when you know how hard you know our members are working against against you know difficult odds. You know, we we have seen you know sixty percent. Up to six percent of our workforce gone over the last, you know, seven eight years, and you can't take that much resource out of a system, put more demand into the system, and not expect gaps and cracks to appear. And what is CTSI doing to tackle that? The first thing, you know, when I took over well, about six years ago now, I mean, one of the first things we did was actually undertake a workforce survey. I think, you know, not many. It was, I was quite surprised we didn't actually understand the state of the uh, UK trading standards workforce. So we did a bit of work around that, and that, that showed us the, the impact of cuts in terms of numbers. We then worked with uh, National Audit Office when they did their review of consumer protection. And what was really positive for us was they accepted all our figures on block about the current state of our profession. So that's been quite useful for us. So I think the issues are well understood now. We've now, I suppose, trying to move on to the next stage is where, where we begin to talk about solutions and what, and what that might look like. And it, it's a difficult one because we have, we have structures in place already around local government and, and that serves purpose you know many purposes very well we've got you know increasing national interest from people like the office of product safety and standards and the cma which again you know is, is to be welcomed and be really positive it, it the challenge now is how you join that, that up in a way that makes sense without losing the really good bits of, of the system that are there at the moment so if you think about the work of national trading standards so when they took over what 2012-13 you know a lot of the work from the office of fair trading Actually, yeah, there was there was a strained relationship between that that national body of office of fair trading and local delivery, and you know, the, you know, issues on both sides there. But what's happened because it's been built on the goodwill of, of local services through regional groups, you know, into you know national coordination. You've got you've got a joined up system that works and has done a lot of really good work built on very, very strong relationships. Now, there are issues with, with that system and you know, and the forthcoming white paper may begin to look at how you do deal with some of those issues. But the danger is you throw away all the good stuff to, to fix those little issues. I think the two challenges for us, one is always going to be about resource and that's always going to be issue, an issue. And I think the second one is about accountability. We often get caught between um, central government saying, you know, here's, you know, it is the responsibility of local government to decide how they fund trading standards. And actually, you know, it, it is their responsibility. And that you'll have local government saying they're not given enough money to do that. So you kind of get kind of get caught in the middle and you suddenly see you know, the impact of not, not you know, of Grenfell, you know, the tragedy at Grenfell and uh, all the issues around Whirlpool. And that suddenly creates an accountable minister. You know, the minister suddenly becomes very accountable for that. And out of that, you now get resources being directed through the Office of Product Safety and Standards, which is to be welcomed. Um, so it's again, how do you create, how do you hold someone to account, a policy? You know, politicians like policymaker to account for the delivery of training standards across the UK. Do you think one of the potential dangers of this more joined up approach where you have different services collaborating on a specific issue is that the services run the risk of becoming increasingly merged by government in the future? In other words, does it pose a risk to budgets? When you look at, look at the landscape and the various players in it, each has a unique role to play, and each has a, has a different skill set. So, so you see some of the CMA stuff, and actually, 
fair play to the competition market authority that over the last six months so they've really got stuck into some consumer issues so the stuff they're doing around the secondary ticketing website yeah actually yeah that couldn't be done locally because one it's too big but actually it it it's about someone skewing the market at a national level so that that has to be de- you know for me that's clearly an accountable thing right right at the highest level of central government but the skill set you have to do that say you know look at national trading standards and and some of their you know the regional investigation teams and some of the you know seriously organized criminals they're taking on that's a completely different skill set to you know work working you know tackling you know people like Viagogo you know it it it, it is hard nosed investigation and then you compare that to the work of you know you know the national trading standards scams team for example and their connections with local lo- you know local authorities and supporting you know those victims uh, you know those vulnerable victims that's a completely different skill set again so i think we get hooked up on structures sometimes it is about it is about how do how do you deploy the right skill set at the right time to do the right intervention and then just the organization you know the organizational structure fits around that i mean i i, I wouldn't want to see any more merging uh, of responsibilities i think there's an argument to be had about you know local services combining you know to to get you know to get economies of scale and, and kind of some robustness and resilience in there so, but you know, still built around localities, maybe slightly larger localities and individual local authorities. But you've got you've just got to be wary, I think, of, of you know, nationalisation by stealth. It's fair enough if actually if that's a decision the government wants to make, and the government puts the proposals out and then consults on that. That's okay because then everyone gets an opportunity to have a conversation about that, to put their views forward, and ultimately, you know, policy makers who are accountable will make decisions. You just, it's just when that that starts chipping away, you know, a little bit around, you know, the accountability of local authorities and their role in the trading standards landscape. You know, it, this still needs to be built on local trading standards services. I think I would just argue, you know, they need to be slightly larger areas they cover than they do at the moment and that's still the bedrock of what we do but you know relationships with people like the food standards agency you know the office of product safety and standards and the cma are clearly important and clearly it's that it's that coordination role that accountability role and the ability to actually fund some some national work that might not fit with a local priority but definitely fits with a national priority but you've got the skill set sitting locally so there needs to be a way i think i think to to unblock that and i think in many respects local government has shot itself in the foot by this insistence that you can't ring fence money so if you're sitting there as a government department and you say yo i've got 10 million pounds for some enforcement work you, you, you might not give it to local government because because it gets lost in the whole the whole of their finances. If you have the ability to commission work in, and this is where I think National Trading Standards works really, really well, that ability to commission work in, so you so you know as the commissioner that you're paying for X and X is getting done. You know, so I think we might see some more, more of that kind of develop over the next few years. To what extent do you think greater collaboration between different local authorities is one solution to the challenges raised by funding cuts? When you look at our profession, one of the things we do really, really well is collaboration. You know, the, the Regional Trading Standards Network has has been around for a very long time and works really, really well. And, you know, you know what, every local authority probably needs a food officer, uh, yeah, and various other skills, but not everyone needs an expert in financial investigations. So it's, it's about so that the ability to share expertise across boundaries 
is really important and really key. However, one of the challenges you have is whilst you can share that expertise across boundaries, if you are funded by Authority X, whilst you might lend your expertise to Authority Y, you can't, you can't, you know, unless you're getting paid, you can't actually go and intervene in Authority Y's area. So, so it doesn't, whilst it helps, it helps with, with the sharing of expertise and knowledge, it's not a mechanism for reallocation of resources across boundaries. And I, think, and I think that's the challenge. So, so if a local authority has made a decision to cut their trading standard service by 80%, that's a decision that they've made and that impacts on their local authorities. Other local authorities will not release funds to go and cover that shortfall, despite the fact that you know, if you make that decision and you have a rogue trader in your area, that rogue trader will impact across boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you know, for example, it's not like a lot of other local authority services. So, if a local authority cuts a library, it is only those their citizens that use the library that that it impacts upon. If you make a decision to cut, you know, your animal health team, and you know, you get an animal disease in your area, that animal disease will not respect boundaries and may go to the next, you know, neighbouring authorities. So it's that real challenge about having a connected, joined-up system. So could you tell us a bit about CTSI's Brexit think tank and what you're doing to make sense of Brexit and prepare for different potential outcomes? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really grateful, actually, to the, to the board and to council because when, when the vote first happened, both the board and council, with myself, considered... What, what our response should be. And this is where the idea of the Brexit think tank came came up. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to get Craig McClure on board and he, he's led our thinking there with our lead officers. And, and it's been absolutely a privilege to see, see how they've worked and they've put our profession at the heart of government's thinking around consumer protection, which is, which is really great because that means our knowledge is there. We're at the moment, you know, we published our findings back in the autumn. You know, the government's looked at those and and by and large accepted what's what's gone in there. Obviously, there's a lot of um, work to do to make sure we maintain the, the body of legislation, which by and large works very, very well. The big challenge, I think, for us is around networks. So, you know, we have co- cooperation networks with European partners that we're plugged into. And recently we've asked a lot of questions in Parliament about that because that's, that's actually really important because you know, if, you, if, if you're tackling criminals that know no boundaries, having those relationships with enforcers in other countries so you can t- take mutual action is, is key to, to tackling the issues. As with everything at the moment, you know, consumer protection will be a very, very small part of any of any Brexit negotiations. So, yeah, we have to wait and see what the deal is. Yeah, I think it's probably very much going to be along the lines of the deal that's that's on the table because I I think a a no deal is probably too unpalatable for people and I don't think there's enough will to push through a a second referendum. So then you will begin to look at, okay, we we start, you know, we start on day one with a very much aligned rule book with Europe. How do we then... Yeah, without being part of that mechanism, try and keep for consumer goods, try and keep that alignment as good as possible. So that's working with people like British Standards um, to make sure that you know we're, we're harmonising standards as much as possible. And there's a real challenge here, isn't there, in supporting businesses, especially some of the smaller ones um, who might not, you know, who haven't got their own teams. You know, an understanding of if I am still selling into Europe, this is what I need to do. Like I said, day one it won't be an issue, but two years down the line, who knows how much we might have might have diverged from from that. So again, it's it's trying to keep our 
our members and our profession up to date. So we've um, secured some a grant from uh, central government to do some training once we you know, once once we have exited the European Union. And again, I suppose that that's you know one of our key roles is is training and development and keeping our members up to date with what the current issues are and what any major changes to legislation and divergence from Europe is and what that means and and again you know our lead officers will be very very important at that whilst at the same time you know pointing ourselves towards central government to make sure we're holding them to account for the promises they've made throughout the process that UK consumers will, will be no less protected you know with the UK outside of the European Union. So, so we've got we've got those twin hats, and, we, and yeah, look, we're well placed to do that at the moment. The work of the think tank has put us, you know, put us right at the heart of this. We're working with consumer protection partnership colleagues, which again is re- is re- you know really good. So we, we're getting that that breadth of views. But until until we've got any certainty, there's not a lot we can do. You've had questions around consumer protection post Brexit raised in the House of Lords recently, and you say that you feel CTSI's voice is being heard in the Brexit conversation. But you get the sense that the importance of trading standards is really understood in government. Yeah, I actually think that there's a resonance net now there that perhaps wasn't there a few years ago. So, so you know, they genuinely, I think, understand the challenges and issues. I think the problem is, is it is it is just you know until you work out whether you're in a customs union or not, for example, actually the consumer issues you know uh, sit to one side. One of the fears actually from central government. Is, is around uh, consumer confidence. You know, we have a surprisingly high level of consumer confidence at, at the moment, but I think it's quite fragile and it wouldn't take a lot to damage it. And some of the early warning stuff will come will come from consumer protection and consumer issues. You know, holidays, for example, is a prime example. You know, what what you know, what's what's the position of the EHIC, for example? That, that kind of stuff. Then you start building in insurance because insurance companies are always, you know, you know, future risking things and costing that in. And then you think about roaming charges. So I was, t- I was talking to someone um, from Northern Ireland, and they live live in Northern Ireland, but live on you know, live on the border. And they were saying that they can walk down their street, and they can cross to a pub- public of Ireland telecoms provider back to northern island telecom provider back to just walking down the street and you're suddenly going well if you if that's classed as roaming charges just just you know how is that going to impact and i think there's you know, speaking to colleagues from uh the consumer council in northern ireland you know, they've got real concerns about the impact on on their their consumers because they are already some of the yeah you know, the most vulnerable and and poorest consumers actually in Northern Ireland and th- and they've got real concerns that they will be disproportionately impacted by Brexit and that's not just a Northern Irish border issue it's supply chains issues and everything like that so I think I think the government understands it all I think there's you know partly have to, having to understand it because they haven't got many expertise so they're reliant on experts like ourselves to inform that. And I think the Consumer Protection Partnership that was put in place, what, 2012-13, means that, means that actually there, there's a real collaborative approach. And, and, you know, I chaired the meeting this week and Brexit was on there. And again, it was, it was really having good conversations about how we use intelligence to get forewarned about some of the issues and how we then collectively tackle those issues. And I think at the moment, 
both for businesses and consumers, it's about clarity of messages. You know, I think, I think uncertainty is a breeding ground for scammers and con, con artists. Um, so the more certainty we can get out to consumers, the more certainty we can get out to businesses, that, then I think we, at least we'll be helping them in terms of protection. And then it's a, the ability for the system to say, right, here's, here's the latest Brexit scam. How can we respond to that collectively to tackle that? So what do you think the future holds for trading standards? And what do you think the ideal future for trading standards would look like in the UK? Well, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly an uncertain time for the whole of the public sector, actually, to be honest, but, you know, trading standards in particular. You know, you've got, you know, the bedrock of it still being local authorities. Uh, they are under enormous financial pressure. And to be honest, I, you could probably only see that getting worse. You know, if we do, if we do get a recession because of Brexit, you know, the, the tools that are available around, you know, interest rate manipulation and quantitative easing, well, we've already used those, so it will be probably uh, a longer and deeper recession if it hits. And that can only, you know, that can only mean further pressures on, on local authority spending. And that's before you even consider, you know, the impact of, you know, the ageing population, you know, the deterioration of, of, of the roads and, and the, the need to invest there. So I think there's going to be enormous pressure coming locally through. I think you know you're you're see the increasing I suppose influence and impact of national bodies such as the CMA, OPS, you know, and the Food Standards Agency. So so you, you'll probably see them coming to the fore. You'll then you know it'd be interesting to see you know how when the green paper translates into a white paper, what comes out of that. Um, obviously, obviously, you know, there's some thoughts about you know strengthening the accountability elements of national trading standards, and you know, I can, and I can see the, I can see the rationale behind that, and I you know certainly support that, but we need to be really careful not to ruin the relationships that have worked because there's some really good things that national trading standards are bought about. So don't really you need to be careful about throwing that out just to get that there. But the interesting thing will be to see the conversation that started in the Green Paper, where that goes about the balance between local and national. I mean, I think if you had a national regu- yeah, if it, trading standards was national, you'd have all the challenges of trying to make it relevant to local people. I think with the system we've got locally... It, it it is that challenge about have you got enough resource for a resilient and robust service and in some areas you probably haven't so yeah that that's why when we suggested a few years ago the concept of you know strategic trading standard services you know maybe covering two or three authorities and you look at the ones that have that have done well they are the larger units covering you know covering a decent size population now yes yeah you know, yes they've been cut but you know they haven't probably been been cut as hard as some and they've you know they've survived because they've got that they've got that massive numbers with the ability to do that. I think you then consider where technology might take you, and that's not just technology in how we can use that to to do you know inspections. You know what what about when your fridge can order your food? You know we, you know that that's that's not going to be that far away. You know you're also, you know, we're already seeing where you know certain operations and certainly you know um, legal cases are mu- you get a much better percentage of of right resolutions using artificial intelligence. So you can imagine you know seeing that maybe some of the ports of entry around market surveillance. So then what does that mean for the skills for the skill set of trading standards officers and where and where do we then intervene? And I and I can probably you know see us in, intervening much more. On the criminality side, you know, it's a much more focused on on the criminals rather than maybe some of the spot check type stuff that that we've maybe done in the past. But again, you know, 
you, you need to layer this all up. So that's it'd be very, very interesting to see what comes out of the white paper. And we're anticipating that in the first half of the year. Uh, and that will build on the responses from the, 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 the kind of, to the green paper. And whilst you know, whilst anything about dispute resolutions to be welcomed, and, and we see where that goes, it's it's that interesting conversation about the balance between local and national, where accountability sits, where resources should sit, um, and where decision making should sit. So again, you know, th- th- there's an opportunity, a window of opportunity for us to have that debate. And I just really hope that you know, when that happens, our members engage with that process because other partners, such as which, have a strong voice. And they have a position that probably doesn't align with where we or our members see the future of our profession. Do you think a more intelligence based sort of data led approach to understanding things like consumer behaviour will increasingly change the nature of your profession? I mean, a lot of work has been done over the years in trying to trying to move us to a much more intelligence based service and you know a lot of, a lot of that's been very good i think you know, you know you need i think we need to think of intelligence i suppose in, in a few different ways the first is what i would class as pure investigative intelligence so that, that that's the stuff where you, know, you identify your suspects you, you you link your suspects for maybe conspiracy that's the stuff that national trading standards do really really well with the intelligence teams so so that that works and that link into regional intelligence teams back into services so that kind of intelligence works really well and i think you've got um the general consumer landscape type of intelligence and that's being done at a consumer protection partnership level and actually that's got a lot better over the last year or so and again so that's identifying i suppose trends analysis you know markets that might not work for consumers rather than those individual traders perhaps so again you know and you think about some of the stuff that's been done on secondary ticketing coming up through there some of the stuff that was done on copycat websites again driven driven through that intelligence modeling so so you've got those but then i think there's there's a third element of intelligence and that's you know, that's broader societal intelligence so when you look at substitution, so you, know, you had horse meat, you know, it's often rife with olives, you know, olive oil, you know, you've got substitution where you've got fish. Actually, there's an intelligence that says what you have is, is a high priced, scarce commodity, which is easily substituted, substitutable for a lower, a lower cost alternative. Well, actually, that just screams to me that someone's going someone's gonna to do that. Yeah, you might not have the intelligence that it's happening now, but when you look forward, you think, actually, that, there's, there's a risk in the supply chain there. So, and so I think that there's that intelligence linked to risk, understanding, understanding that modelling, understanding that you know, if, if the olive crop fails, for example, by and large, that's, that's going to raise the price of olives so that that will expose that supply chain around olive and olive oil products um to substitution so i just think if if you look if you look at that that intelligence at three different levels and you then put that together what you should have is a properly targeted service you know there will always be gaps you know and we need to understand where those gaps are but it's about having your resource pointed in the most effective and efficient manner what do you think a society without trading standards would look like I think one of the biggest challenges, leaving aside everything like Brexit and austerity that we have as a profession, is demonstrating our value. We, we intrinsically know what that, that value is. But translating that into, into a narr- both a narrative and facts and figures for policymakers and politicians is, is quite difficult. You know, we did a bit of um, research with other partners a few years ago with the 
uh, University of Birmingham in LoGov. And again, it, it is just hard to quantify the contribution we make. And that means it's really hard then to say what life would be like without trading standards. What I would say is you know, we look after some of the most fundamental and oldest citizens' rights in the world. The rights to have, you know, fair trading, you know, weights and measures, product safety, you know, protection of vulnerable people at both ages, actually, the the elderly from scams, the young, the young from um, age-restricted products. Yeah, these are these are key things. Now, if we disappeared overnight, probably on day one, there would, you know, not a lot may change. But it doesn't take long for marketplaces and sectors to deteriorate. And at the moment, we're trying to drive people to to the top of the tree, actually, you know, to go beyond mere compliance with legislation and embody it. You know, everything we want around you know consumer movement, consumerism, and consumer protection. Actually, it doesn't take long for everyone to have a race to the bottom. You know, if, you, if someone, if your competitors cutting corners and getting away with it, the temptation for you to do that is great. Actually, especially if we're going to have a, have another squeeze for another recession. So we just need to get politicians uh, and actually campaigners to understand the real value. And I think actually some of the work that's come out of people like Witch Money Saving Expert, I think really demonstrates you know the need for a professional profession like ours and that's before you even look at the you know the individual stories you know the you know the little old ladies who get ripped off for hundreds of thousands of pounds at times those heart those heartbreaking stories you know the the people who've um hurt themselves died because of unsafe products without us you will get more of that that's not a world that will people want to live in you know where you know where you're buying buying something and you do not know whether it would be safe or not Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Leon Livermore for talking to us, and I hope you enjoyed the stories and advice he had to share. We'll be back again in a fortnight with more insight into the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye.